Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Tom Pattinson. And today, I speak to a friend and colleague, Paul French, author of North Korea, A State of Paranoia, and an expert on the region. I've known Paul for over 15 years, and we've both spent time in North Korea. Today, we discuss the North Korean hacking group, Lazarus, and how they're increasingly targeting cryptocurrency exchanges to help fund the regime. In late 2020, Singapore-based cryptocurrency exchange KuCoin was hacked for $285 million. While a large amount of the funds were recovered, the UN has just released a report claiming the hack was carried out by the North Korean regime. It's suggested that the proceeds could be going to fund the country's military and its nuclear weapons program. With heavy trade sanctions imposed on North Korea, for decades the regime has been finding alternative methods of securing foreign capital into the country including an incredible trade in counterfeiting 100 US dollar bills, making and exporting methamphetamine, and some high-profile attacks on international banks. But before we get into the interview, I need to also thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you'd like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out the other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. As Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com. So it'd be good to sort of maybe start with what, what you, you saw in the press the other day about the Qcoin heist, just sort of you saw that and you think and, and that has been suspected to be uh, a North Korean heist. Is that right? Well, what interests me, obviously, as someone who follows North Korea quite closely, is that, you know, when we saw the KuCoin heist last September, um, it didn't really register particularly with me. But just now, the United Nations investigators have said that they strongly think that the KuCoin heist last uh, September is linked to this uh, now quite notorious North Korean-linked hacking group that are known as Lazarus. Um, that can be traced back to any number of cyber crimes, including bank heists, but also including things like the Sony hack and even potentially the hack on the NHS in England and, and, and various other, you know, rather damaging data breaches that have happened. So let's just remind ourselves of some of those hacks. The Sony hack was done, uh, if I remember rightly, probably about five or six years ago, a bit longer, when... The film came out, wasn't it around that film or was that just a coincidence? Yeah, it, it, no, it was definitely because they were very angry about um, a, a film that rather mocked um, Kim Jong-un, the great leader, and they weren't very happy about it. And so, um, I mean, I think we can safely assume, and the FBI definitely assumes, that they um, hacked Sony. And that led to a massive data breach, some very embarrassing emails going out that were maybe producers and directors at the company said things about actors and other talent at the company that they may not have wanted to get out in public. But that was sort of about as damaging as it was. Um, Some very red faces. It didn't look good. Um, It showed that even a major corporation, you know, obviously a Japanese corporation, but with massive interests in America and so on, could be um, could be hacked. And then this group has has before that and then gone on to hack various banks and in the cryptocurrency sphere, we think for a long time, many independent accounts, uh, particularly in South Korea, to steal money, to sort of sow distrust 
to create a little bit of havoc. And probably more lately since 2016, um, to uh, acquire a large amount of money for the North Korean regime, which of course is under very strict and supposedly China-supported now sanctions by the United Nations. So money is very tight in North Korea. So let's go back um, to a couple of other heists first, and then we'll talk maybe more about who who's doing it and, and the reasons why. So one of the biggest ones um, that we know of was the Bangladesh bank heist, which I think was in 2016, is that right? What what actually happened there? And, and I think that was up to a billion dollars stolen. If you could just sort of talk us through what, what happened, uh, what the actual sort of process was that took place. Well, to, to, to put it sort of succinctly, what they did was um, that um, they ran through a number of SWIFT codes. They were able to get access to the SWIFT codes, you know, these, these codes that we use for traditional international bank transfer. And the Bank of Bangladesh, although it's the sovereign bank of Bangladesh, obviously is not a particularly wealthy country, although there's a lot of money in that bank, and obviously uses another bank as a kind of guarantor, which in this case was the, the, the Federal Bank of New York. And so... That's what attracted a lot of attention is that the money was literally over a weekend when no one at the Bank of Bangladesh was paying any attention to anything. This uh, 100 million pounds arguably uh, could have been as much as 1.1 billion. I mean, the banks are notoriously not telling you a lot of information. Sometimes they like to tell you it's very large numbers. Other times they have their interests for telling you it's much smaller numbers. But they got in, uh, stole it and disappeared. Now, of course, this attracted a lot of attention. Not really because it was Bangladesh, which I have to say not many people were too worried about, but because it involved the the American banking system as well and flaws in that. So so large amount of that money disappeared. A lot of it was eventually recovered. Um, but a lot of it, interestingly, to those of us who follow the chains of um, North Korean criminality around the world, disappeared down to Manila, where a rather shady Chinese businessman organized a sort of massive, basically weekend party at casinos in um, in and around Manila and and uh, Davao and other cities uh, around uh, the Philippines, um, where they gambled as much of this money as possible. I laundered it in this way. Um, as I say, a lot was recovered with the help of the the Philippines. A lot was recovered actually with the help of the Chinese as well, who were slightly embarrassed that their nationals were involved in this. And one has to say, when you follow the chain of North Korean criminality, there are always links to, to China. But still, still a large amount of it has never been recovered. I mean, certainly more than, than, than 18 million. Um, and estimates go a lot higher as, as, as never, ever been recovered from that heist. And it showed, importantly, uh, you know, a massive hole in the international banking system around the use of SWIFT codes and so on. So it attracted a lot more attention than, say, the KuCoin heist did even, you know, outside of the world of people that follow cryptocurrencies. That really wasn't a big story anywhere. I mean, you wouldn't have seen that on your news program, probably. No. With with the um, relationship with the Chinese here, I mean, I think we're just talking about the, the laundering element. If this is the North Korean, whether it's state orchestrated or, or not, presumably it is state orchestrated. Have they got then the consent of the Chinese to help them launder this money? Well, well, it depends how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. I mean, many, many people, I mean, it is generally assumed that Lazarus Group, which is probably a North, the North Korean hacking group, was probably originally trained by the uh, People's Liberation Army's cyber warfare department, which we know is, is very effective. Now, does that cyber warfare department 
engage in in China, engage in anything uh, other than preparation for potential cyber war? Well, we just don't know. Some people think it does. Um, there are various people who analyze the hacks and the code that are used in the hacks see various flags that they believe identify Lazarus Group. Now, some people believe that that could be the Lazarus Group, you know, showing off and, and wanting everyone to know it's them in a sense. Other people believe that could be a false flag. That other hacking groups, potentially Chinese, official or unofficial, are are laying in bits of this code that they talk the North Koreans enabled for it to look like North Korea, so that there's a deflection of guilt. But the, the general assumption is at the moment, and there are all sorts of allegations about what Chinese and particularly Russian hacking groups and the North Koreans have a relationship with Russia as well, may be doing in everything from uh, referendums in England, elections in America to actual uh, criminal theft. Um, it, this does seem to go back to North Korea. And North Korea does, of course, have a very long history, not just of hacking banks and cryptocurrencies, but of engaging in other uh, criminal activity that um, to raise money for, for the regime, um, most of which have worked for a while, but then not worked because of this essential question that you annoy one or another important country uh, by, by what you're doing. Um, and um, one of the arguments is, of course, that with cryptocurrencies, that they're finding a way around that particular issue of getting into a spat with one particular country over this. So that's a good point. I mean, I think you mentioned we'd go back to the Bangladeshi heist there with Bangladesh. Fundamentally, you said it wasn't really the fact that it was the Bangladesh Bank that it was was the problem or that caused the headlines or caused consternation. It was the fact that they were backed by a New York bank. So effectively, New York or America as a state can get angry and implement economic or other sanctions, military even sanctions against whoever might be the perpetrators. Bangladesh, on the other hand, has a lot less power and influence and people behind a crypto exchange have even less than that, right? They don't really have any any influence or power that can threaten uh, a nation state, even if it is um, North Korea. Yeah, I mean, look, it is true that North Korea, in, in this sense, doesn't, I mean, of course, it rhetor its rhetoric is that, you know, it can fight America. But realistically, it doesn't want to get into that spat because it just makes things worse with the United Nations and sanctions and the prolonging of sanctions and ramping up tensions, not just with that, with America, but with America's allies, particularly South Korea and Japan. So um, th these, these, are, these are all tensions. And if you go back and look at some of the sort of former criminal activities of the North Koreans, they, they, they didn't really help in that sense. So the famous in the 90s, the, the, uh, the counterfeiting of $100 bills. And the North Koreans were absolutely superb at counterfeiting $100 bills. The Americans themselves, the, the Treasury Department in America admits no one's ever done it better. It is also to be remembered that the extremely good printing press that they had was sold to them by the French. But that's neither here nor there, I suppose. <laughs> so, but, so just break that um, down for us, actually, before we go, carry on with that, because I think this is a, you know, this is another fantastic story. So, in the nineties, when you know yeah. hard physical currency was the dominant currency, I suppose, yeah. they had the world's best faking uh, hundred dollar bills yeah. faking system, right? So, the, the Treasury if, Department, if you, mate. How, how do you yeah, explain the Treasury, Department, the Treasury Department maintains they were the best $100 bills ever created. I mean, you know, 
part of the sort of response of everyone to Chinese to an extent, but but certainly the North Korean hundred dollar bills and and Chinese fake products in general, with the rise of holograms and different sorts of money. But those old hundred classic hundred dollar bills, no one's ever faked them better, or, or in larger amounts. The problem is, once they go into the system, eventually the Americans are going to work out what's going on, and when you start faking another country's currency, particularly, you know, the most powerful country in the world, uh, they're going to get very, very annoyed with you. And in a sense, in terms of sanctions and economic um, sanctions on, on Korea, much of it goes back to this. They did try other things. I mean, they also became probably the single largest manufacturer of methamphetamine and weren't overly, weren't overly cautious in how they um, distributed it. So there was always there was also, most famously there's the case of the Pong Su, which was a wreck of a North Korean ship that that sailed on as far as we know the longest voyage that any North Korean ship has ever gone on, which was all the way to just off the coast of the Great Ocean Road outside Melbourne, um, wow. where in a massive storm it went up and down, and various criminal elements were waiting to offload what would have been a massive amount of methamphetamine. Now, the Australian authorities were alerted to this. They had been tracking it. There's a fantastic um, podcast on this done by one of the Australian newspapers that you can find, The Voyage of the Pong Su. And it shows that this uh, this crew managed to sail all the way down, you know, past Indonesia. They'd never, no one had ever gone this far uh, for North Korea. And, and, you know, it was quite dangerous for the ship they were using. They tried to offload it. Eventually, the Australian Navy apprehended the the boat and the people ashore waiting for it, but but a vast amount of um, methamphetamine that would have flooded into the Australian market. We know that North Korean methamphetamine has has popped up elsewhere around the world, throughout Southeast Asia, um, and also in China um, and and down in Australia for previous trips. So uh, reasonably desperate to involve themselves in criminal activities, but of course. Transshipping drugs around the world, getting on the wrong side of Australia, of course, America's you know number one ally in that part of the world, really attract the spotlight's too big, right? Mm. And and similarly with the Bangladeshi heist and 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 other bank heists that they have tried before they did the Bangladesh heist, they tried a heist uh, successfully hacked into a Vietnamese bank and um, stole a lot of money. And that was believed to be the Lazarus Group. And that led to um, problems as well, given that the Vietnamese were were not happy that a country that, you know, in a sense is somewhat of an ally, not mm. a complete ally, but somewhat of an ally, had hacked into your bank and stolen stolen a lot of money from you. And, you know, the, if you like, I think it's a case of what a lot of that was doing was burning bridges for North Korea. If North Korea thinks it's going to have any allies that that say, we don't want sanctions against you. And of course, that campaign hasn't gone very well for them because even uh, China is now voted within the UN for sanctions against North Korea. Um, you know, Vietnam is one of those countries that you probably could persuade to get on side at a certain point. Well, if you didn't steal money from their banks, if you didn't trick one of their nationals into being part of an assassination of the half-brother of your leader at Kuala Lumpur Airport in 2017. One of those girls was, of course, Vietnamese. Um, so, so relations are not good. But these sort of classic, if you like, I mean, you know, for our modern day, just bank robberies, right? I mean, this is sort of 
you know, cyber Dillinger sort of work. You just yeah. go into the bank, steal all the money and run away. Um, you know, attracts a lot of attention, worries people who are part of the international banking system, annoys national governments and draws a lot of attention towards North Korea. And I think that that has proved lucrative in a sense, but counterproductive, um, as did methamphetamine, as did forging currency. Um, and so I think cybercrime, and you know, th this, as, as your listeners will know, is something that organized crime around the world has got into, right? That you, know, you don't need to rob post offices and rob banks anymore, right? It's too risky. The sentences are too harsh. Um, it's much, much easier you know, to do cybercrime. And we've seen that, of course, with organized cybercrime all across Europe, America, Brazil, another country, Russia, and other countries that are very good at it. And the North Koreans have simply worked out that this is a way for them to get large amounts of money with, with very little reputational risk. So just trying to get into perspective here, the, um, the amount of, of um, money in comparison to their GDP, for example. I mean, I don't necessarily know the exact numbers, but back in the 90s, you've got uh, hard, hard cash, $100 bills being faked. Then more, more recently, you've got the, the SWIFT uh, bank exchanges being done and now obviously the the cryptocurrencies exchanges as well as a as a sort of benchmark do we have any idea about how much how many hundred dollar bills were made how many were exported and what sort of um, percentage of their national income if you like that made up i suppose i'm trying to work out how important fraud like this in terms of uh, stealing money is to their economy well i think the the actual role of of criminality in north korea has changed a little bit i think back in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was what we used to call the Dollars for Kim campaign, or what they used to call within the, the regime, according to defectors, the Dollars for Kim campaign. Of course, we've had three Kims, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and, and Kim Jong-un, the grandfather, the father, and, and the son. So it's a dynasty. Um, what the money was for back in the days of a bit of meth and um, dollars and the early bank heists was... Twofold. One, one was to sort of sow, sow confusion and, and problems, for, particularly for South Korea and so on. So going into the early cryptocurrency accounts in South Korea, putting malware in people's computers so that you could read their password and everything and steal some South Korean students, uh, you know, a couple of thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, um, wasn't really to make money for the, for the uh, North Korean regime. It was more to just undermine the overall economy of, of South Korea. It's the same reason as they'd like to hack in and to the electricity grid in South Korea and switch off the lights in Seoul, right? It, it would just cause, it just causes problems and it's part of that low level, sometimes rather higher level grinding antagonism between North and South Korea. The other element was to get in some extra money when the economy wasn't quite so disastrous to fund the little trinkets and bonbons that the uh, higher echelon of the regime need in order, arguably, to stay loyal. So as far as we know, the Kim clan itself lives very high on the hog. Lots of houses, you know, famously stallion horses, jet skis, probably cars. I mean, it's just so hidden, we just don't know. But also, uh, but we know that they, you know, for instance, Kim Jong-un was sent to a private school in Switzerland and you know, so that, that all has to be paid for. Um, and then there are the higher echelon of the country and they have to be bought off somehow. I mean, you know, these are reasonably sophisticated people. Um, and 
they the argument would be that you know they cannot be completely true believers in the sort of godlike status of the Kim family and the complete isolation of North Korea as being a positive thing and that this is really the best country in the world. I mean, I can remember years and years ago sitting on a plane flying from Beijing to Sydney. And um, I very kindly was upgraded by Qantas on the flight down there. And on the plane was the, the North Korean ambassador to Australia. And I knew that the North Korean embassy in Sydney at that time was actually almost beachfront property in Bondi. You know, and, wow. and I, I, I'm not a journalist. I'm not enough of a tabloid journalist to have plucked up the courage to ask him what I wanted to ask, which was, you go down there. Now, of course, he's not allowed to take his family with him. His family yeah. are kept in North Korea. The Chinese diplomats used to do this as well. You travel on your own, your family remains behind. And I really wanted to ask him, you know, when you're sitting in your office in Bondi, having flown business class, you know, on Qantas down here, and you've got a driver and you go all around Sydney and all the rest of it, eating and going to receptions and things, you know, do you really then when you get back to North Korea think, you know, thank God I've left the awful, the awfulness of Sydney behind me to get back to Pyongyang, right? I mean, you know, do you really, is this really, and of course I don't think they do. I didn't have the guts to ask. So, you know, <laughs> those people probably need a few little bits and pieces to to remain uh, loyal to the regime. And that that won't necessarily be a lot, but, you know, better housing. They need access probably to laptops and phones and you know, maybe some luxury goods. We know that there's a lot of luxury watches and things shipped from China down to North Korea. So where do they go? Well, you know, and they're not really worn in public. You won't see them all, you know, bossing their Louis Vuitton and Rolexes at the at the Workers' Party Congress. But but one assumes that there is some sort of world there that where all of that is possible. And that was really all it was. Um, but now, particularly with many years of, uh, number one, the cost of the nuclear program to North Korea, which needed to be funded. Number two, the continuing desperate state of the economy, which just literally cannot feed its people and has virtually no experts no, no exports, sorry, apart from illicit exports, nuclear technology and methamphetamine and so on. Um, and also so who, now who's it sending high. nuclear technology to then? What kind of places? Might, well, we might... know that they've, they've done various deals with, um, with, with, with various countries around the world and perhaps with terrorist organisations. So, so weapon know-how and so on. Um, even, even if it's not nuclear weapon know-how, we know that they are able to, to sell missiles and things to, to various people. So things like that are popping up all around the world. Um, and we also know that uh, COVID has hit them very hard, even if we're not able to know whether or not COVID is rampant in the country. Certainly, it's meant closing the borders. So a country that had already closed borders is now completely closed. Things where they did make some money, like the Kaesong Economic Project, which is right on the border between North and South Korea, where South Korean companies went in, used North Korean labor, that shut down. Trade with China is still going on in many ways, but is at an all-time low. So, so things are tough in North Korea. Um, and so the money that is required to make up the gap in order to maintain regime survival has to come from somewhere. And of course, one of the arguments is that the Lazarus Group has been tasked with, with sourcing funds through activities like the KuCoin heist or, or the Bank of Bangladesh heist. 
Because that's a, you know the the KuCoin heist, which I think was there were two different heists added together around three hundred million, uh, say. Um, that's not necessarily for a country the size of the UK or the US or, or another major Western country, you know, going to put a big dent in the in the um, GDP of the country. But I presume in somewhere like North Korea, that actually would have a significant effect. Well, some people have estimated, yes. I mean, money goes a long way in North, in North Korea. Um, when you've got absolutely nothing, giving someone, you know, being able to repaint their building or or, or just keep the lights on mm. uh, go, go some way to things. Also, you have to have money that arguably um, can buy you. We know, we know with a lot of trade with China, for instance, around food and around oil and fuel is, is in contravention of uh, uh, UN sanctions. And that has to be paid for, you know, not not through normal channels. There has to be a way of paying for that. So, so that's that's why they need that money as well. Um, so, how does that work actually? The the trade with, I mean, I think that's quite an interesting point that I don't fully understand at all. The relationship with China right now, because of course China is still seen from the outside as being one of North Korea's closest allies in many ways. But as you say, they're they're part of the UN resolution which has sanctions against North Korea. So, what is that relationship? I mean, how is it? Is it all black market? Is it sort of under the table? Is it is it partly state sanctioned? Well, I mean, I mean, to be to be fair, I mean, if there is any of it that's state sanctioned, we don't really have any proof of that. Chinese banks have have acted against North Korean bank accounts or bank accounts that they assume are linked to North Korea. Uh, state owned companies and and other companies are are told not to do business with North Korea. Certainly, way metrics that we can apply to this such as um, are North Korean companies popping up and doing various bits of trading through state-owned Chinese banks or through, I mean, you know, as was the row a few years ago, through Hong Kong, through banks like Bank of East Asia, Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank, and so on, right? There were issues around freezing bank accounts there. Um, that, that seems mass transfers of oil, particularly, don't seem to be happening because that is a state-controlled thing. And another metric that we can apply is literally how many trucks are going across the border, um, you know, uh, into North Korea from Jilin province. So, and that seems to be way, way down. So there is, of course, some humanitarian aid going in from around the world that, that often enters through China, but but that's allowed under the sanctions. Um, and then there's probably what, what, what would be illicit trade, which could be anything from... Uh, Chinese companies using North Korean factories to do part work on textiles or small electrical items um, in order to save a bit of money, um, but could be you know much larger uh, shipments of goods by sea, often um, down around either coast of North Korea to um, to to the north, with who knows who turning a blind eye. For, for yeah. who knows what. I mean, the point is that if some people have added up that if you look at all the heists that have happened in the last four or five years, including Bangladesh, including Vietnam, including various hits on smaller financial institutions in South Korea um, and, and various other uh, cryptocurrency heists that have gone on, mostly smaller than KuCoin, but, but you know many of them, um, where they arguably were learning what they were doing. And when I say learning what they were doing, not necessarily learning how to hack, but learning how to launder. So, so the point mm -hmm. is, hacking into the accounts is probably not that difficult for, for Lazarus. That's, that's their thing. 
how you launder the money once you've got it so that no one knows that you've got it or where it's gone um, is the really tricky bit. And that's tricky, obviously, with 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 real money, if you like, $100 bills. You yeah. know, you've got to launder those through a casino in the Philippines or whatever it is you do. But you've also got to somehow launder your cryptocurrency. I mean, it, it, so it's how, a currency in the sense that it has to be laundered. How did that – I mean, that, that's a very good point, actually. So going back to the the um, you know, Filipino casinos or, or casinos in Macau or wherever it might be, how did they do that? I mean, how how – I mean, I understand if you've got a hundred dollar bill, but if you've actually withdrawn money from uh, or stolen money from a bank, how do you go about laundering that? And and obviously, again, we've presumably got some kind of uh, complicit agreement with with Chinese individuals, if not the state, again to to do that, right? Yes. Well, I mean, obviously, when you're laundering money, you're always having to take a hit on it, which could mm. be as much as you know, only ending up with twenty cents on the dollar. But when when you're talking about such vast amounts, um, th- then you're able to move it around, and of course. There are casinos. There are large chains of shops. I mean, you know, if you live long enough, some of us do. I mean, you know, we, we remember that lots of money was laundered through video shops at one point. Here, here where I am in the south of England, large amounts of European criminal money is laundered through kebab shops that seem to survive on selling a kebab and a bag of chips a week somehow. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. how can that possibly be true? Uh, and it's always an amazement to me that Her Majesty's revenue and customs doesn't seem to have worked this out. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, you know, and, and all sorts of things, right? Petrol stations, any, any business where there's large amounts of cash coming in and, and no one's really that worried about it are able to launder money. And also, of course, money can move across boundaries, particularly if it's, in, if it's hard cash, if you like, if it's in international currencies like uh, uh, euros and, and dollars, of course, sterling and things like that. Cryptocurrency, of course, is, is a very interesting one and arguably is in some ways more of a problem in terms of laundering. But in some ways, of course, if you're the Lazarus Group and technical wizards, as people who are involved in cryptocurrency tend to be, um, you know, they understand the technical elements, then there are ways of doing it. Um, I, th- I mean, now I'm not a very technical person, but one of the, so so obviously I understand um, you know, putting money through the books of a car wash or a, a kebab shop um, much more than I understand cryptocurrencies. But what they call um, peel chain is uh, one of the ways where it's done, where, where the money is taken from one big central account like KuCoin or someone who has a whose account you hack who has a lot of cryptocurrency. And then it's moved through multiple, often thousands uh, or hundreds of thousands of smaller accounts that are set up. That, that hold smaller amounts of money. And these will all be Bitcoin wallets and so on that have new addresses. And, you know, it's very easy to diffuse the money across um, many, many, many accounts. And the other way is um, is uh, what they call chain hopping, which is where um, you, you steal a large amount of one form of cryptocurrency and start converting it into different cryptocurrencies, right? So, you know, you're, you're, you're able to, um, to move, and that makes it very difficult to track, which I guess is just a sort of technical version of I've stole a load of, a load of pounds sterling, and then, you know, as, when I've laundered it, I've laundered it into euros and Aussie dollars and Hong Kong dollars and, and you know, uh, Brazilian real or whatever, you know, and that just makes it all harder to find and to track. Um, uh, and also, uh, you want to get it away from 
Bitcoin, which of course has a a more public ledger, but mm. with 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 other um, cryptocurrencies, you're able to to move it away where it's much harder to work out where it's gone. So so that's and and there are other ways of doing it in more sophisticated ways. And these ways are obviously what, according to the UN report and other experts on these things, the Lazarus Group has become really super adept at doing. Because it doesn't anymore involve having bricks and mortar businesses or people walking around with wads of cash, you know, like you'd see in the movies or something with people with, you know, sports bags full of bills that they've got to get rid of and everything. It It, it is just all done by automated systems, but it's still money laundering. And I suppose the other thing with both crypto and also the fact that it's North Korea, there's a, there's a far smaller number of people trying to stop arrest or, or you know, um, prosecute these people. I think we've talked about before, you know, with banks, you've got the actual institution of the bank, you've got the investors, if it's a state bank, you've got that nation state. Um, and again, if it's a if it's an individual or a, or a person in that country, there's there's a way of prosecuting them. But presumably, if it's a state orchestrated group in North Korea, even if it's there's evidence to show that it's them, what can anybody do about it? I mean, it, there's a there's not much, I suppose, that can be done, is there? Well, I mean, this is what really interests me and where I think the North Koreans have really, you know, uh, taken up the cryptocurrency thing and, and why for people that are involved in cryptocurrency, this North Korea thing is not a one-off. It's going to become, a, it's going to be a continuing problem because um, it, it is this notion that somehow cryptocurrency is supranational, which is one of the things that's so attractive about cryptocurrency to so many people that it is, you know, you, you're not at the behest of, some central bank somewhere or some overarching regulatory machine. So uh, that that is also attractive to the criminal element that are using it. And we know, you know, you know, if you like, old-fashioned criminals are also involved in various things around cryptocurrency. But the main thing is that what North Korea doesn't want is too much spotlight on it in terms of nation-to-nation problems, right? So it, and and that is where cryptocurrency comes in. One of the other ways that that we think on smaller deals that they were accruing cash is on over the counter transactions, right? Whereby you've got unlicensed uh, operations in China, particularly where you know that will convert Bitcoin to cash, right? Real, real, you know, if you like, I keep calling it real cash, and I know the cryptocurrency people will hate me for that, but I'm trying to think <laughs> of a better word. Um, you know, it, it, but you convert it into sort of, uh, you know, hard, old-fashioned, dirty, dirty COVID-carrying currency, right? <laughs> and, um, and 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 then you can go and, and spend that. And there are these illegal over-the-counter places in, in China, particularly, which is, hand, I mean, I, I mentioned China because, of course, it's next door to North Korea, so and it's a very easy place for them one of the easiest places for them to move around in still. So that that all means that you know you don't when you when you steal money from KuCoin, it is of a concern because it's a large amount of money and we want to know what's going on. But it's it would it is not and the UN will take an interest, but but what if it was if you'd stolen that from a bank in Singapore, I think there would be a lot more interest. And if you'd used uh, 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 swift codes from an American bank to get into the Singapore bank to steal that money, which is a variation of the Bangladesh heist, you would then have the Americans after you as well. On the KuCoin heist, who have they got after them, really? Right? Who's going mm. after them? Um, I mean, it, it, I think this is a big problem for 
for Singapore, which has the which has the company there, but it isn't it isn't a state company or a state link company. It isn't registered in the way that that a that you know a bank would be registered there, um, a traditional bank. Um, and in the same way, uh, may I, I mean you know they say that, that that no customers have actually lost any money when you put together various insurance packages and some that's been, they've been able to get back and so on. So I guess people aren't really the, the customers aren't really shouting about it, and around the world, no one else is looking at it. I mean, the Bangladesh heist did get on the news. I mean, KuCoin, I mean, here in the UK or you know on American TV, has it really even been talked about? I mean, you know, I don't know how much it's nope. been talked about within cryptocurrency forums and podcasts like yours, but you know, I mean, switch on CNN, switch on the BBC, and it, it's not really been a story. That's true. And then I sort of just want to end on Lazarus, really, and their, their sort of structure, uh, because I don't know how much, how much people know about it, you know, how, how well orchestrated they are. You say they're trained possibly uh, by the PLA, the China's People's Liberation Army. Are they getting stronger? Are they getting funding from, from the North Korean state? Have you got any more information about Lazarus specifically? It's it's hard to. I think most people involved in this assume that at some point there was some help, some training from back in more cordial relations with the PLA cyber warfare unit, um, and most of their work until they started really going after major heists like the Bangladesh one. Most of their work was really kind of sowing dissent and economic problems by ha- by spreading malware into companies in South Korea. So obviously the North Koreans are not going to talk about this, but also equally often the South Koreans were reluctant to talk about it as well. They don't necessarily want everyone to know that the North Koreans are penetrating individual accounts, are just rampant throughout their internet, basically, right? They don't, they don't want everyone to know that because, of course, South Korea has its own cyber warfare and cyber protection uh, capabilities, which are, which if we're to believe that everything that goes on in South Korea is the work of Lazarus, um, and and it is also the the case that there could be, you know, criminal gangs from anywhere, of course, within South Korea itself that are quite happy to let Lazarus take the blame for all of this, right? But uh, South Korea's not been that keen to shout about it either. So they've been able to move around, spreading malware, gathering information, sowing seeds of distrust. Um, And these are really the two ends of North Korea's ability to strike at the moment, right? I mean, yes, we know they have this extremely large army, but if you've ever been to North Korea and actually spent time in and among soldiers, which which I have done by mistake, actually, um, (laughs) coming out of a theater once when we were all supposed to turn turned left, I turned right and ended up in amongst a bunch of North Korean soldiers, this supposedly fearsome largest single man army in the world. And most of them had shoddy tennis shoes on that had no laces. And the frays of their uniforms were cuffed. They themselves were not in not in a good state, you know, um, not really, you know, I mean, these, these are serving soldiers who hadn't had a shave for a couple of days, who... Uh, whose body hygiene wasn't great, whose dental yeah. hygiene wasn't great. Right? I mean, they were a wreck. They were farm boys, cashiered into the army, bemused to have a six foot five foreigner wandering among them, obviously, and and <laughs> and in a fairly poor state of repair. They were not crack troops. So so we don't worry about that. And we also know, for instance, you know, submarines. Right? They ha- yes, they have submarines, but they're like this kind of 
Yugoslavian uh, reverse-engineered submarine, then it's got a terrible record. We know that they do have an air force, but as far as the Americans can work out, for instance, the amount of time the pilots spend in the air due to lack of fuel is is mm. virtually nothing, right? So, right. so yes, there's some old MiG fighters. Yes, there's some guys in a pilot uniform that salute at the parade, but how much time they've spent in the air simulating dogfights and so on is is questionable. Yeah. So what they've got at one end, of course, though, is nuclear weapons. They definitely mm. have nuclear weapons. And what they have at the other end is cyber warfare. So, you know, and in, in the 21st century, that's a pretty effective combination. Um, and Lazarus Group, unlike their pilots or submarine captains, Lazarus Group are getting a daily workout you know, mm. testing themselves on uh, ripping off Bitcoin dealers and and banks and and sewing malware into corporations and so on. Um, I mean, th 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 these these guys are working every day doing stuff. Um, so it's a, and and also you know the actual cost of a cyber warfare operation is 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 nothing compared mm. to you know maintaining a fleet of fighter jets or aircraft carriers and so on. So so um, it, it's a very effective strategy for countries like North Korea that perceive themselves to have lots of energy, uh, lots of enemies and, and have a lot of grudges against people and also, you know, need to get cash to ensure regime survival. So we could expect uh, a lot more of the same then, I presume. If I was in the cryptocurrency world, I would be very nervous about this because I think that, um, look, KuCoin happened in September 2020. You know, it wasn't a lead story anywhere outside of the cryptocurrency universe, really. The United Nations has eventually issued a report on it. It hasn't That hasn't really been reported in any of the major newspapers either, really. I mean, go online and have a look on Google and you'll find it in various tech tech sites and cryptocurrency sites, but it's it's not there in the major newspapers. It's not on the front page of the New York Times or, or you know. So um, I think that the North Koreans will take from that that, you know, this is not a bad way to go. Right? Mm. You know, let, let, let's get in there and, and see what we can do and how much, uh, you know, um, trouble we can cause and money we can we can gather. So I don't know. I don't really quite understand where KuCoin sits in terms of its size and, and importance, like within the hierarchy of organizations like that. I don't really personally understand whether or not hitting KuCoin is hitting a small Vietnamese bank or hitting Citibank. I don't know where it stands on that scale. Um, and that I think would be interesting, whether or not this is that they've moved from targeting various South Korean uh, accounts and, and small exchanges and whether or not this is a massive step up or whether it's a sort of gradual process of hitting, you know, like a harder a target and a harder target and a harder target, you know, a, a, a bigger bank, a bigger bank and a bigger bank. Um, so I don't, I don't personally understand that element of it. I think KuCoin, just for your information, are, are hovering around the top ten, top fifteen. Okay, um, so if there'd been so if there'd been an if there'd been a North Korean there. heist on one of the top fifteen banks in the world, mm. I, I I think that would be I think that would be on the front page of all our newspapers. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, fascinating. Is there anything else um, that we haven't discussed that you think is worth worth mentioning? Yeah, it's it's very interesting that KuCoin have been very. Where people are reporting it are saying that they got most of the money back and the customers didn't take a hit. And this is 
in that sense, they're kind of replicating the answers of traditional banks, right? Mm, yeah. Which is always to say, but, look, you know, yes, we've had a problem, we've had a breach, we're, we're locking it down, but none of you have actually lost any money. And I think, you know, that's that's sort of interesting that they've had to respond that way. It, it does raise issues for people because it's not if you have a company like KuCoin in your country, and in this case, it's in Singapore. It's Singapore can make a decision to either distance itself from KuCoin or to say this is an attack on one of our com companies, right? If it was a traditional bank, you know, if it was Bank of East Asia, or if this was the UK and it was the NatWest Bank, if it was America and it was the Bank of New York, um, there would be no doubt that all of the powers of the authorities, you know, police, judicial, media, and so on, would, would be involved in this. The government would be involved in this, right? Um, once it's someone like KuCoin, yes, it's a, it's a guy who's got a company in your country, but the accounts are all over the place. I mean, this is not the case, I don't think, in KuCoin, but it might not necessarily be a national of your country. You know, your government doesn't really have a stake in that com company. Your, your, your government doesn't really regulate that that organization so it you know the government always wants to be off the hook right it doesn't want it to be a failure of police judicial or regulation and so it also does throw up an issue for for national governments and people who who want to know whether or not I, if i'm going to set up a company in singapore and something happens to me does singapore go to bat for me but if i move it to the uk are mm. they going to do anything for me right you know do i get any kind of protection like this and I have to say for some of the cryptocurrency people wanting then the protection of a state apparatus, if you get ripped off, you know, well, that was exactly what they didn't want, right. To, 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 to get away from. So, so that might be, you know, you might find yourself in a bit of a problem there. And that kind of looking at it in the wider sense sort of interests me in that, you know, people who didn't, didn't want to be part of some regulatory system may, may can't really cry cry fire when, when there's a problem, right? And expect the uh, fire engine to turn up. Thanks for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Paul French. If you want to find out more about anything we discussed in the show, there are links in the show notes. Also, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, please head over to our sister podcast, What Bitcoin Did, that's available wherever you listen to your podcasts. I need to also thank my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com.